This comes from Jonah 3, 1 through 4, 4. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah greatly, exceedingly, and he was angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for being here with us today. God, we ask that you would be with Ryan as he teaches us um, your truth. God, would it fall on open hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Y'all can be seated. Good morning. How y'all doing? (laughs) Good. I learned very early on as a church planter in the state of Georgia not to make jokes after a night like last night. Hey, I just want to say the Lord's blessing is already on your life because you are here this morning, and it's good. So, um, hey, so we're in a series of messages. I don't, you know, I don't know how many of you have ever heard a message from the book of Jonah during Advent, but... uh, Here's why I want to preach uh, the story of Jonah, part of the story of Jonah today, is because we're in a series of messages called After Darkness Light, and I, and we've been looking at our relationships um, uh, and, and how light uh, affects them, like how we come out of darkness into the light in those. And so we've looked kind of at the big picture of Isaiah 9 uh, the first week, and last week Carte talked about God's grand mission for the world, for light to permeate the darkness and today what I want to look at is when light comes upon a city. What happens when light comes upon a city and how can we be participants of, of bringing light into a city uh, ourselves. Now, uh, Advent, if you're, if you're new to the church, that, that word Advent is simply a Latin word that means arrival. And it's one of these words that uh, we've decided to use to describe this Christmas season uh, because, frankly, the word Christmas is, has been kind of hijacked by consumerism. And we really want to focus on, 
on Jesus. And so when we think about Advent, we can think about it actually in three tenses. We can think about the, the arrival of Jesus initially, the one that we typically think about, and the birth of Jesus. We can think about the arrival of Jesus like here, and now, here now and today, that the presence of Jesus is arriving in our hearts and lives through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we can think about the future arrival of Jesus when he comes at his second coming uh, to make all things new and to execute judgment on the world. Now, judgment, it's an interesting concept. When most people think about the word judgment, uh, it is a very negative thing that they think about. But really, a judgment is only bad when it's a false judgment or it doesn't go your way and it's a true judgment, right? But judgment enforced by the just king of the world is so satisfying. Like for believers, judgment is a very good thing, and here's why. Every believer I know struggles to see the connection with what they say they believe in their head and what they functionally believe in their heart and then how they live uh, their lives kind of through their hands. The head, heart, hands, kind of the collaboration of those three. And when the, the, the final judgment of Christ comes, there'll be no more mystery. Everything will be in the open. Everything will be in the light. And the things that Jesus said about his church will finally and fully be true in all of us. And it'll be this amazing thing. That we won't have this doubt of our assurance of our salvation anymore. That we'll be settled with Jesus. His face will be proof. Now today, we're talking about our relationship with the world. And God really cares about our relationship with the world. And we could even say our relationship with the city. And... Um, one thing that Jesus constantly warns the church about is to not pronounce judgment on the world, or we could say the city, before he comes. Everything in us wants to, but in doing so, we forget that we were one time all once of this world. And until Christ returns, the church will grow and expand in the midst of the world and within our city. It's like that parable that Jesus tells of the wheat and the tares, you know, when the when the Pharisees just kind of want to pluck up everything, Jesus says, no, the two have to grow together until the judgment, until the harvest time comes. And that's God's vision for how his kingdom, how light will come into the world, is among, among the, the world. <clears throat> so today we're looking at this really interesting story. It's a story where a prophet of the Lord took judgment into his own hands against the city that God called him to go and to serve. Um, uh, it's, in the story of Jonah, um, it's interesting because this story it has really little to do with Nineveh. It has way more to do with Jonah and his reluctance to obey God than it does Nineveh. But before we dig into this story, I think it's important to first kind of take a, a heart check in our own hearts and our lives and ask ourselves a question. What is our relationship to the city that Jesus has called us to go and serve with his word? What is our relationship to Metro Atlanta or Monroe or Lawrenceville or, you know, Brookhaven, wherever you live? What is your relationship to the community that God has called you to be salt and light in? And to even ask the question, is there any chance that we're secretly a little more like Jonah than we realize? That maybe we've pronounced judgment on the place God has called us to be light before Jesus has? And when I say city, here's what I mean, because I know some of you can think, I, I don't live like in, you know, Buckhead. You know, I don't live in, in uh, downtown Atlanta. 
Whether you live in Monroe or up in Buford or here in the heart of Gwinnett County or in the perimeter, uh, we are a city-leaning people. We both benefit from the collective resources and opportunities that come along with living in a city, and we also experience the brokenness and pain that comes with living in a city of 7 million people. So what I'm saying is this, is that we are all on the hook this morning. Atlanta is much larger than Nineveh was. Um, so this pertains to us, I think, even, even more. Uh, especially because Jesus has made two things really specific, okay? The first thing is this, is that he is absolutely sovereign over where you live. You do not live where you live, work where you work, and share life with who you share life with on accident. Acts 17, 26 says that he has predetermined the boundaries of your dwelling place. You might have thought it was your idea, but it was his. The second thing is this, is that he has called us to be salt and light in that place he has called us to live. Two things that are absolutely clear to us this morning. So just as a quick sketch, I think we can, we can have at least four different types of responses that might describe our relationship to our city. So you might call this a, a DTR to define the relationship to your city, all right? So here's a, here's a, here's a few things, kind of diagnostic things for us. And, I, and by the way, let me just give you this caveat because I'm going to make everybody mad and offended, okay? I'm, I just am. It's, it's going to happen, but I've been offended first. I just want you to know that. <clears throat> the first response that we can have in a relationship to the city God's called us to is this, is that we can be tempted to run away. We can be tempted to run away from the city. So Jonah, Jonah chapter 1, God called him to Nineveh. What's he do? Runs, right? He runs away. And I, I would say this, that running away is motivated by control. You want to try to control the outcome. This is why Jonah was so frustrated when they repented. Now, <clears throat> we have to, you know, you might say we have to run away from, from all this sin, from all these people, all these systems that are from the pit of hell, and they're just going to ruin our family. We have to get away from all of this. I was just talking with a friend this week who happened to move out of Gwinnett County, out into the country, and there's no, nothing wrong with living more in the country. But he, said, he was here this week and he said, man, I am so thankful I'm not in the city anymore. It's bad here. And I corrected him and I said, bro, it's beautiful here. And God has called me here and I love it. And he was just kind of like, whatever. So, um, I mean, because the reality is this. Is that there aren't degrees of sin in people, right? Sometimes we just want a more comfortable way to live in sin, Right? But the city puts it right in your face, the brokenness right in your face. And God doesn't call us to run away, but sometimes I want to, and maybe you want to as well. The second way that maybe you can relate to the city is that you can hide within the city. And I think that this is motivated by Fear. I think this happens when the cost of being faithfully present in a community just seems too high. And so we cave. Or we don't do the work to engage faithfully. We just get lazy. This is when the church prioritizes a collaboration with culture to such a degree that it becomes indistinct from the city that it was called to. And I think in the last two years, We've seen this, haven't we, church? We've seen this all around us. So instead of being in the world and not of the world, you just are in the world now. 
You are indistinct from the world. And this, this is happening to many young believers uh, in our world today, possibly even in our church. And this happens when you prioritize, say, only the message of grace without the message and call to obey. And, and this is why evangelism, and Cameron talked about this a couple, few weeks ago, this is why evangelism seems so offensive to our younger believers, because it calls out this need to repent. And this is why so many trends in the church are happening today, because it's easier to hide and to become a chameleon than it is to remain faithfully distinct as believers. Maybe you are tempted to hide within the culture of the city. Or thirdly, maybe you just, maybe you, you make war with the city. And I think this is motivated by anger. This is kind of similar to, to running away, um, but it's more aggressive. It says the world is taking the church hostage and we have to fight. And this approach is characterized by hostility and aggression. It says let's fight fire with fire. And I would say that most of us that lean toward this camp probably express, express our relationship to the city and the culture around us primarily through politics. And to be honest, I think this is probably the go-to for many conservative believers. And we, too many, too many at times, we just get worn down by the world, don't we? And we just start to get lazy. And we let somebody else do the talking and engaging for us, and we just retweet, and uh, uh, not, not just, we just kind of regurgitate what we've heard around us. And it may or may not be faithful presence, a faithful gospel presence. Now, like I said, I think I've probably offended everybody in the room. Welcome to the party. We're all here together. Um, but I think at, at, at one time or another, all of us are in these places, maybe in the, in the course of a week. Um, but here's the good news. I think Jesus has a way better way a much better way, that, that sounds better, to engage uh, with the city that he's called us to. And it's what James Davison Hunter calls a faithful presence. Faithful presence is what it looks like for light to come into a city after darkness. So this is our fourth way I think that we can relate, is that we can remain faithfully present, being motivated by spirit-empowered faith. And this is a faithful yet distinct presence in our city, in our community, in our culture, among its residents, and to refuse to be repelled by the unbelief that surrounds us. This is when the church is patient, this is when the church is bold, and this is when the church stays engaged with the community, not abandoning our kingdom post because it seems hopeless. I am just as tempted to run away, to hide within, or to fight against the culture in our city as you are. But Jesus gives us a better way to remain faithfully present. I just want to give you an example from my own life that happened even this week, okay? <clears throat> and you've probably got your own examples, and we could talk about a lot of them, but I just want to paint a picture for you of what it might look like for you and what it does look like for me. Just this week, I was talking, about, uh, talking with someone about using the correct pronouns for people. It's, it's a conversation that everybody's going to be confronted with. And to be honest with you, uh, I just immediately went into this la lazy kind of judgment uh, mode and kind of rolled my eyes internally. Um, I was like, why do we got to deal with this? Are you kidding me? And um, <clears throat> then I was convicted. And, and here's the deal. Faithful presence with this whole gender identity revolution in our midst is crucial. Because when the trend fades, 
and the prodigals want to come home, where are they going to go? Where are they going to go? To churches that condemned them on the one hand before Jesus did? Or to churches that just loved them in their lostness and never spoke the truth and love to them? Or are they going to come home to faithfully present churches? It means that we believe in an identity that doesn't stop at gender. See, the, the problem with the gender, gender identity struggle is not that people struggle with their identity and, and finding it in gender. It's pro, it, the problem is, is that it doesn't go deep enough. That's the problem. Uh, it's actually what Jesus calls us to is much deeper. When our world can't see an identity deeper than a pronoun, of course it's going to try to find life in rebelling against God's design. Galatians 3.28 says this, and this is, this is what it looks like for light to come after darkness in, this, in the city of Galatia. Paul's writing about it. And he says, here's what happens. He says, it's like this, that there's neither Jew nor Greek. So, so race no longer defines what it means to, to belong to God. There's neither slave nor free. So that there's neither socioeconomic status no longer defines what it means to belong to God. And then he goes on to say there's neither male nor female. Gender identity no longer defines what it means to, be, to belong to God. For you are all one in Christ. That being in Christ supersedes all of those ways that we try to find identity and our distinctiveness apart from Jesus. You see, the gospel calls us much, much deeper. But it takes a faithfully present church to proclaim that message and to stay actively engaged in the midst of our city. Who else is going to do it? And because of this, you and I, when we're empowered by the Spirit, can stay present. And we can do the work to stay engaged Because Jesus has a much deeper design and a much deeper way for the world to feel known and loved than just tweaking our gender identity. And how in the world are you and I ever going to see that in our city and in our church that's in our city if we pronounce judgment before Jesus does? This is just one of many examples that I could give you about how the Lord is calling me to faithful presence when I want to do the other three things. So the rest of our sermon today is going to be aimed at what it looks like for us to stay faithfully present as a church so that we might, by God's grace, see light come after darkness in our city. So here's our big idea. To see light come after darkness in the city requires a faithful presence of God's people in that city. So let's look at this. The first thing we've got to look at as we turn to Jonah 3 is God's relationship toward the city. Like, what does God think about massive groups of people in highly densely populated areas? What is his general disposition to cities? And what I found is that God's heart is incredibly compassionate toward the city. It's the very reason that the city of God begins in a garden and it ends in a city. It's his vision of how the kingdom will come to earth. Okay, so let me give you a little bit of context as we're jumping straight into this little four-chapter book about the prophet Jonah here. So the story goes like this. God calls this prophet up from northern Israel, from Joppa, and he says, go to Nineveh. 
Now, this is the center of the Assyrian Empire. It is the biggest city in the world at the time, and it has a reputation. Awful things are happening in Nineveh, so I don't want to undermine that. It's a great, big, old city. And uh, so he calls Jonah to warn them that in 40 days he's going to destroy the city if they don't repent. And Jonah immediately pronounces judgment on the city and goes his own way. Uh, Juan, do we have a map of this? It's just real quick. To show. Oh, yeah, here we go. This is great. So uh, if you can notice here, uh, this, I don't have a little pointer. That'd be cool, wouldn't it? Um, but this is where Jonah's from. This is, this is hometown right here. And uh, Jonah's, God's called Jonah to go over here. <laughs> and Jonah, Jonah goes on a ship to the, like the farthest known place in the world away from Nineveh. <laughs> Like this is like like the like the the southwestern coast of Spain is where Jonah wants to head, and somewhere in this journey, I don't think this this guy was just making this up, of course, but somewhere in there, all this happens, and I guess this was when he was in the whale here, all this was happening, right? So um, so the Jonah, so God providentially comes after Jonah in his rebellion, just like he does after every prodigal, right? That he's called, he comes after him, and and um, God visits. <laughs> The, uh, Jonah on this ship, and this big, this tempest just roars, and then the, the, Jonah tells the sailors, you got to throw me overboard if y'all want to live, <clears throat> and they kind of express a degree of the fear of God in doing it, and uh, they throw him out, and the, and the, the Lord, uh, is, uh, Jonah's in the heart of the sea, and, and this, this fish comes and rescues him. It's his, it's his Savior, and then while he's in the belly of this fish, Jonah repents, at least to some degree. Uh, it might be a little bit of a forced repentance, but he repents. And he gets spit up somewhere on the coast, the Mediterranean there, and he makes his way to Nineveh. And that's where we pick up. Jonah 3, 1 through 5. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Let's try this again, buddy. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. The message I will tell you. So Jonah arose and he went to Nineveh and According to the word of the Lord, now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. It was three days' journey in breadth. It was huge. Now Jonah began to go into that city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh's going to be overthrown. I mean, basically, he, he took like the, the lowest reduction of the good news that he could, and he shared it with him. He's just kind of reluctantly sharing is the impression that you get. And then this amazing thing happens. The people of Nineveh believe God, this reluctant servant who doesn't even want to be there, and God just saves them, everybody in the city. And they called for a fast, and they, they put on sackcloth, and the greatest of them down to the least, and that's what happened. So Nineveh at this time is the largest city in the world. It's the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And Jonah doesn't want to go because he knows what's going to happen. He knows they're going to repent. And, you know, it's interesting because in this part of what Jonah says, we only hear the warning. But in, in uh, Jonah 4.2, we hear, like, the gospel, too. So, so he, he, he shares the full range of the gospel because he says this in, in Jonah 4.2. He says, he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my country? This is why I went to Tarshish, for I knew. And he, he repeats this refrain that goes throughout the entire Old Testament. I knew that you were gracious, God, that you were merciful, that you're slow to anger, that you're abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I knew you were going to save these jokers. 
And this is, this, I just want to stop on this for a second because a, a, the, when you preach the full range of the gospel message, it includes both warning and grace. And we see that happen here um, in Jonah. He knows God's character. He just doesn't want Nineveh to experience it because of how evil they are. And anytime our gospel message doesn't include both warning and grace, it's not complete. It's either in one ditch or the other, right? And this is why we have to warn our friends when they're on a highway to hell, but also remind them of God's unending grace. And the, the, the church has historically vacillated between the two ditches there. <clears throat> so what do they do? They, they, Nineveh, they mourn their sin and they heed Jonah's gospel message and God shows compassion on this wicked city. And in so many places we see this, that God's natural disposition has, has been a desire to show unending compassion and grace toward helpless and ruined sinners by using his people to proclaim the gospel. Listen to Matthew chapter 9. This is when Jesus um, <clears throat> walked the earth and he dwelt in the cities of this earth. Verse 35 says this in Matthew 9. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. That word compassion is this word that indicates this, like his bowels are churning within him. Like he's broken hearted over what he sees. He doesn't just see the face of their sin and how offensive it is to his Father in heaven. But he sees their brokenness and he's drawn in. He doesn't change his message. He doesn't water it down. He doesn't soften it. But his heart leans in. That's what God has always been doing with us. And he says he does this because they were like, they were harassed and helpless. Like sheep without a shepherd. In other words, there was this huge part of their life that was missing. The shepherding nature of God in their heart and in their life that could spare them from so much of the pain that they got themselves into. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus, like some of us, I, I'm guessing he probably preferred that little prayer garden at the Mount of Olives or a you know, uh, the, the Galilean countryside. He probably preferred to be out there with his Father in heaven. It probably seemed a little easier to abide in those places, right? But his heart was drawn in. His love of all of God's children who needed to experience the presence of God through the work of Christ drove Jesus to be present with sinners. Does the heart of God do the same thing to you, church? Have you ever wondered why Jesus did ministry this way? Why in the incarnational peace of Jesus, not just coming to earth, but dwelling among sinners and tax collectors was his mode of operation? Have you ever wondered why he did it that way? It's because the city can't change unless God's present in the city, unless his people now are present in that city. So here's my question as we keep going here. If you were to take inventory, where would you say you are at in your relationship with the world or the city around you? Maybe, maybe you're tempted to run away or to hide within or to fight against. I don't know what it is for you in this season of your life, but don't be afraid to acknowledge that. Because that very thing could be the barrier 
in, in really your understanding of God's call upon your life. Because the reality is, is that Jonah needed Nineveh as much as Nineveh needed Jonah, right? He needed to call out the unbelief in Jonah's heart and do work in his heart. So let's look at this second piece here, this response that happens, the last five verses in Jonah 3. I want to look at how cities change. What's the, what's the formula? Like what happens when widespread renewal and transformation come upon a city? Like what's that look like? I mean, are we fr- afraid to pray for that in Atlanta? What would that look like for us? So over and over again, here's what we see. There's this pattern. You know, God shows a, a degree of grace to even cities like Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And Lot's like captured with, with Sodom and Gomorrah, and God destroys it. But he warned them first. They just didn't heed it. And then Nineveh. Nineveh heeds it, and they're spared. But not too long later, the, you know, a generation later, they've forgotten the gospel because they take Israel captive, right? They, they are the very people that take Israel captive. And the, the lost ten tribes of Israel are because of the Assyrian captivity that happens, right? That's probably why it's so hard for Jonah here. You know, you, you think about Jericho, destroyed. Rome, eventually transformed and then destroyed again, right? You see this kind of vacillation of how the kingdom of God comes upon cities, Here's what we see in verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, and he removed his robe and started to humble himself, and he covers himself with sackcloth, and he sets in ashes. And he issued this proclamation and published it throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Put that on your Advent card that you send out to your friends, right? I mean, it's this beautiful message, right? And uh, he says, who knows? God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we might not perish. And when God saw that they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he didn't do it. That's a tricky verse. I'm going to talk about that for a second, but... This warning that, that Jonah gives to them, even reluctantly, it, it produces this widespread transformation in Nineveh, this repentant heart in Nineveh. But he has to go into the heart of the city to proclaim it. The warning of judgment against sin and the hope of grace is proclaimed. And this is the, this is the key because you cannot simply just love someone into eternity without proclaiming the gospel to them. Why? Because Romans ten seventeen says what? Faith comes from hearing, and hearing from the word of Christ. This is the way God has set his kingdom up, that his people would proclaim and demonstrate the gospel, and that the Spirit would quicken the hearts and wake people up. We don't know how it happens, but God does it that way. We see it happen in Nineveh. We can see it happen in Lawrenceville, in Atlanta. And it doesn't get more straightforward than this. This is how the kingdom of God expands and grows. It, it cannot grow and expand apart from the proclamation and the demonstration of the gospel because that's, God, that's how God said it would grow. He could do it another way, but that's how he said he's going to do it. And he said he's going to do it through me, and he's going to do it through you. So what's repentance look like in Nineveh? What, what would repentance look like in Lawrenceville, right? Sorrow and grief over sin. So the people start one by one. To sit in sackcloth and ashes. Now, sackcloth was this super uncomfortable material made of goat's 
hair that was incredibly uncomfortable to wear, right? I don't know what a modern-day example would be. Maybe a, maybe a T-shirt that's just 100% cotton. I don't know. You know, not a tri-blend. You know, just something super uncomfortable that you're wearing, doesn't fit right, and it's a sign of just intentionally making yourself uncomfortable as a, as a sign of what's going on in your heart. And, and, and they put ashes on their head, and, and these ashes were the dust of death. This is what we deserve. There's this acknowledgement that they deserve that. And then they fast, and it's this choice that they make, this physical decision to deprive their bodies of nourishment for a season in order to deepen dependence upon God. And that's what fasting always is. And then there's this humility, this widespread humility that's starting with the king and permeating the whole city. The king and others, they willingly come down from their thrones and their high places. Everyone's on the same level. And it reminds us that, that really the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And being, standing at the foot of the cross is what is necessary for any sinner to be saved. So we see this happening from the top down. And it reminds us that the Ninevites and us aren't owed anything by God. If forgiveness and grace are to be extended, it is by his decision and his character alone, not our worthiness. That's the truth that any community has to get to see revival happen. Now, there's this interesting verse in Jonah 3.10. It says, when God saw what they did, so it's kind of using this anthropomorphic language, like God doesn't have a body, he doesn't have eyes, right? But it's kind of using that kind of language to help us understand the experience. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he didn't do it. Now, it's a little tricky to interpret, but here's a couple things I want you to know. God never changes, so it's not like God was like, man, I'm going to destroy these guys. And then when he saw, oh, man, they repented. How about that? Well, I'm not going to do it anymore. That's, that's not how God is. God is immutable. He doesn't change. This was his plan from the beginning of the foundations of the world to save Nineveh on this day. It's his plan. The second thing uh, that we see is that he never sins, so he doesn't need to relent to repent. <laughs> he doesn't need to change his mind. What Jonah is expressing in this verse, if, if you're having trouble interpreting it, is is his human understanding of how grace works. God had every right in his justice to destroy Nineveh, just like he has every right in his justice to destroy you and I every time we sin. He has that right. He would be perfectly just in making that decision. But he chose before the foundation of the world to spare Nineveh on that day, just like he chose from the foundation of the world to spare you and me if we're in Christ. Now, when widespread and renewal and revival are set ablaze in a city, this is what happens. That they repent. It's this miraculous thing, and the church must be faithfully present to proclaim and demonstrate the gospel. Now, it's easy to give up on this when we don't see fruit, isn't it? And sometimes in the history of the church, there have been generations of fruitlessness in our attempts to see our cities revived and changed. That's why it cannot be the primary motivating factor. Obedience has to be the primary motivating factor. Joy in Christ has to be the primary motivating factor. But I just want to encourage you for a second. If you're wondering if New City Church is about seeing light come after darkness in the city, because it is, because I get to hear all these little vignettes. I get to hear all these little stories about things that are happening in your lives that collectively make this beautiful mosaic of what's happening in our church as we live in the city. I get to hear stories like someone riding in an Uber and starts this spiritual conversation with their driver, and, and the next week he shows up at church with his family. I get to see things like this happen. 
It's like getting a, a text from a local business owner telling me that he's just shared the gospel with one of his clients who's really in a broken place and prayed, asked me to pray that it would take root and lead to transformation. It's like getting a message from Tana up here on the stage a few weeks ago who, who just asked us to pray for her relationships at work. Who said, you know, guys, I just got this amazing opportunity to proclaim and hopefully demonstrate the gospel to three of my coworkers that work in the darkest industry in Atlanta, the film industry. I get to hear these stories, these vignettes of what is happening. To hear that, that the city leaders, especially at Central Gwinnett, uh, the, the, the school's cluster there, are more open now than ever to the church serving in their campuses because they feel so broken and hopeless right now. To hear that God is using a public servant in our church in a, in a, in a mighty way, even to, to, to help a, a young man make a decision not to take his life a couple weeks ago. I get to hear these stories. If that's not light coming after darkness, I don't know what is, church. You see, what happens when you choose to step in individually, we collectively shine a little brighter. And it happens in the small, incremental decisions. Because, church, the fields are white for harvest. And he wants to use you, and he wants to use me, and every other believer in this city to shine. So let's, let's kind of close this by talking about our responsibility to the city. What is our responsibility? And I think it's this. As the church, we must first address the misalignment within our own hearts between God's will and, and how we respond to it. That there's often misalignment. We have to repent. Uh, repentance is a lifestyle, not this one-time thing, right? So there's this misalignment we've got to address. Now, in the book of Jonah, you know, it's kind of about, no, no, it's mostly about Jonah. And we've said that. I mean, because God was going to save Nineveh regardless of Jonah, because that city, that king, and those, that the, and those people that were there belong in heaven just as much as you and I do, because God chose them. But, but so, so let me just read the first four verses of, of Jonah, um, and hear his response to the Lord when God saves Nineveh. It says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord, O oh Lord. Is, is not this what I said when I was in my country? He said, I knew, and we just read this verse a few minutes ago, that you were slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, he says this, this is crazy. Please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. It's better for me to hit eject. It's better for me to run away. It's better for me not to even see this happen. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Now, there's five more verses that come after this that, the Lord continues to work on Jonah's heart, and we don't really have resolution. But he uses this plant, and this that rises up, and anyway, you can read it. But he's basically dealing with Jonah's unbelief in, in chapter 4, and we don't have the resolution that we need in Jonah. And he's basically saying, God, I knew your character. I knew that you would let them off easy, that you would forgive them. And as I said earlier, the hardest part, and you can read the history of this in 2 Kings 14, is that uh, Jonah is mentioned during the reign of Jeroboam II, which would have been between 786 B.C. and 746 B.C., right? So sometime in there is when all this happens. And the Assyrian captivity is in 722 B.C., so somewhere between, I don't know, 20 and 40 years after this, the Assyrians ultimately overtake Israel. This city that was saved. The city that repented. And, and here, here's the... Here's the Here's the warning for us. Sometimes the very people that you are called to serve will hurt you, or in this case, they'll capture you, or in Jesus' case, they'll crucify you. 
That's not the point. What the point is, is obeying God and serving the people that he's called us to serve. Now, on its face, there's no way any of us would want to live on mission in Nineveh. They did gross, disgusting things to people. They were brutal. But it's the power of the Holy Spirit in us that sends us to even our enemies to proclaim and demonstrate the light of the gospel, even when it's going to come at a huge personal cost to us personally. Jonah would have rather experienced death than repentance. And we might not go so far as to say that about our enemies, but sometimes we treat people like they're already dead to us because we just refuse to show up and be present in their lives. That's functional unbelief, church. The rest of Jonah 4 plays out, leaving this beautifully broken and repentant city, um, you know, restored and whole at the moment, and leaving Jonah angry instead of joyful. And why? Why? Why does Jonah respond like this? Because Jonah's heart was not aligned with God's heart. This misalignment in Jonah's heart is expressed in his continual attitude of wanting to hit eject and run away and hide. And it's expressed in anger and disobedience at times, just like it is in my heart and yours. So as Jonah goes outside the city walls and hopes that it will be condemned, God reveals to him that Jonah seems to care more about this little plant than 120,000 souls in the city of Nineveh. And to be honest, you know, we don't get this resolution with Jonah. The same way the book of Jonah is about God exposing Jonah's heart through this opportunity in Nineveh, our relationship to the city that God has called us to exposes our hearts too. Because why? You, you don't just live here on accident and God's called you to serve the city. And so this city serves as a conduit to expose what God is functionally doing in and through us. And if we were to experience this type of renewal in our city, the only way that it could be explained would be through a miraculous working of the Holy Spirit. And don't you want to be a part of that? Yeah, I do. I'd love to look back and say, man, y'all remember what happened in Lawrenceville in 2022? Man, that was wild. That was crazy. Only God could do that. But our prayers are too small too often, aren't they? They're too small. We don't pray that big. We pray about these things that affect our nuclear family, which are important things, but we never reach to the deeper place that the book of Galatians called us to, that we might be all in all in Christ. Where will we find the power to live as light in the city God's called us to? In the Gospels, we hear that on the week of his passion, Jesus sets outside of the city of Jerusalem as he's getting ready to go in and spend his week there. And he just looks over it, and he's just brought to tears. He just weeps. Luke 19 says this, he drew near and saw the city, and he wept over it. You ever wept over your city? You ever wept over your neighbors? You ever wept over your coworkers? Have you ever wept over the brokenness that's around you right in front of your face? Why not? Why not? Jesus spends the entire week of his passion in the city of Jerusalem, and he shares with his disciples and proclaims the gospel to them, to all he sees and encounters. And you know what they do? They reject him. And isn't this our worst fear about attempting this? Rejection, pain, hurt, sacrifice. 
They rejected Jesus first, and they made Jesus carry this cross outside of the city walls, and they they hoisted him up on this cross at this place called Golgotha, which overlooked the city. And they made him look over the city that he loved, and as the nails were being pierced through his hands and his feet, do you know what he said? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He had grace to the end. And that heart, if you're a Christian, is inside of you right now. The question is, are you aware of it? And do you hear it? And do you respond to it? Jesus accomplished this so that you and I could be so secure in his kingdom forever and so that we would have no fear as he sends us into the world, into the city. And so here are the two pictures for us as a church. You see Jonah? Jonah's the one that sits outside of the city scowls at it, condemns it. And you see Jesus, who enters the city, weeps over it, and gives himself for the city. Which prophet will we follow, church? Let's pray together. Father, to some degree, we all repent because... uh, we all should repent, Lord, because we've all lived like Jonah in this world. We all need to be forgiven. You care far more about our city and our world than we do. Even when we're caught up in our idolatry of worshiping it, you still care more about your creation. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. And Father, I pray... Um, that our hearts could be realigned to your word and your will and your ways as we dwell among these people with this light inside of us. And so, Father, um, would, you, would you lead us to a place of awareness today as we think about how we relate to the place you've called us to? And, Father, may the stories of the transformation of our city May they arise like just light from the darkness, Lord. Just a phoenix from the ashes, Lord. Would you do that in our midst, Lord? And would you comfort us today, Lord? Because we don't know how to do this. We need your strength. We need your power. We need your forgiveness. We need the power of the Holy Spirit alive and well in us. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God together, proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.